Well, hello everyone. It is good to be back today. I am talking with somebody who, when he jumped on, looked familiar. At one point, when you were working for Leadership Journal, I was introduced to you by Sky Jathani, Drew Dick, over at Moody Publishers. How are you, Drew? I'm doing well. Good to see you again. I didn't realize that we had met before, and as soon as I saw your face, I knew we had. So this is kind of a reunion of sorts. Drew, you can never forget this face. <laughs> Uh, hey, Drew, I hey, I am here in Chicago, Illinois. When we were talking, I thought you were still in Illinois, but I guess you're talking from Portland, Oregon. I defected. That's correct. I couldn't handle the winters. Uh, so I'm out in the, the beautiful Pacific Northwest. <laughs> we got a lot of family out here, so it's nice. And of course, it's beautiful. If you've been out here, you know, we have so many trees. I joke around people. I'm like, you know, people from Chicago, they'll go and pay money to go to a tree arbory. They'll just to yeah. see trees, you know, here we would, we would pay to get away from trees. There's so many. Yeah. 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 Hey, okay. Now this is Mr. Unprofessional me here because I should have done this before we start recording. Do I have an echo or does my sound come clearly here, Drew? I can hear you loud and clear. How am I yeah. sounding? You're sounding great as well okay. too. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. True. You work with Moody Publishers for the last seven years. And I, I got a chance to work at the wonderful Moody Bible Institute. And I used to remember you were, when I was there, you were guys were at the Moon Building that has now been torn down now on Well Street. Where, where is Moody Publishers now? And what do you do as a site acquisition editor? Yeah, no, that's right. The Moon Building, um, actually Moody um, had a, a, a project recently where they sold a whole bunch of land because they yeah. realized they just weren't using it. Uh, and and that was one of the things that was sold. So in place of the little humble, what, two-story moon building, there is now a gigantic skyscraper because <laughs> you know yes. that real estate is some of the, the most prized in the world. Uh, and we're now right across the street in the Chapman Center, yeah. uh, which was built, oh, maybe 2017, I believe. So yeah. it's a beautiful four-story building right there. Did you know, Drew, I used to have to sit there and say this all the time, Moody earned the, owned the third most land in the city of Chicago, it was the city of Chicago, Chicago Park District, and then Moody Bible Institute. Wow. Wow. I know. And when, when D.L. Moody knelt down and prayed for that land, I think it was a little cheaper at that point. <laughs> or more so, a lot of times the story, as Marvin Beckman, the former lawyer, used to tell me is, Moody Bible Institute would engage in these neighborhoods. So where Moody was, nobody was doing ministry or engaging. And so they would just send their students to engage their neighborhood. The city of Chicago liked it so much, especially the old Mayor Daly, not Richard mm. Daly, the, the father, would then sell different parcels of land to Moody Bible Institute at discounted price because what they were doing in the city. Interesting. That's so cool. And it was a rough area back back yeah. in the day. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on, Richard Daly, who lived in Bridgeport, would then, and I used to see his minivan all the time outside because I lived in Bridgeport, would hire Moody students as his babysitters because those were some of the best students that he could uh, find to really be able to take care of his kids. You can trust them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These Bible students. Absolutely. Yeah. That's funny. Hey, so with your role as a site acquisition editor, you probably... Are you looking for authors or are people submitting manuscripts all the time? How do you decide? And then suddenly do you read all of them? Do you then pick the best five or how does that work as a site acquisitions editor? I usually hear a voice from heaven telling me which books to take. No, I wish. <laughs> um, so yeah, basically my job is evaluating ideas um, and proposals. Sometimes those come in directly from authors. Sometimes they come in from agents. 
uh, they'll send me a, a proposal, usually not a whole book. Usually, um, I actually discourage people from writing a book on spec. That's industry speak for yeah. you know writing a book on speculation that it'll get published. You know, you do a proposal that's a that's a lot easier, maybe 20, 20 pages or so. Um, and then yeah, I look at that. I say, hey, does this fit Moody? You know, theologically, is this a good topic? Is this the right person to write this book? And then I wish I could make unilateral decisions on what books we take, but that's not how it works. And then I bring it to our public publishing board and present the idea. And then we have a lively discussion and then there's a decision made uh, later that week. And so, yeah, that's, that's the process. It's a fun, uh, fun job. I feel honored to do it because, you know, I, I still believe maybe I'm, maybe I'm just old school, but I still believe that God is changing people through the medium of the written word. Yeah. Cause I think back to how certain books have been formative for my spiritual development. And I, I feel honored to get to wake up and, and do that every day. Yeah. Hey, true. I mean, I'm putting you on the spot now. Was there a book or an author that no one really heard about this particular author and all that stuff. And they published a book and it just became big that you were very surprised by. Is there a story or <laughs> yeah. a particular book or author? Great question. There, there've been many, I'm sure one that comes to mind. Um, actually this was, I wish I could take credit for this. This preceded my time at Moody by a little bit, but uh, the book uh, when helping hurts, I don't yeah. know if you've heard of that one. That's a great mm -hmm. book um, written by um, a couple Brian of economists. Fickert. Yeah, that's right. Brian, yeah. Fickert. Um, it's a great book, but, you know, the story goes, it's like, this came in, okay, this is like, you know, a book about, hey, we all have this heart to help people that are in need and the poor, and yet we can actually make things worse <laughs> if we don't yeah. know what we're doing. Um, and so, but they thought, oh, that's a kind of a corrective book, and uh, maybe the, the topic's a little obscure, maybe this will sell five or 10,000 copies, and I don't know what it's at now, it's like yeah. hundreds of thousands. Um and so, yeah, you just never know, right? Because, and I think it was, the timing was right. It was a time when evangelicals were really, really excited about, you know, getting out there and, and helping uh, people around the world. Um, and yet, and there's a whole raft of books like that, but then this one comes along and says, hey, listen, let's be careful uh, that we don't mess things up, even though we have good intentions. Yeah, and I love Brian. I see him a lot at different events and conferences. And the one time, first time I was supposed to meet with Brian, I said, Brian, can you... Give me a picture of what you look like. And he says, you will not miss me. I'm over <laughs> six feet, six feet, 10, six foot 11. Exactly. He is also our tallest author. So that's another <laughs> distinction that he has. <laughs> and then for you, even, I mean, we're going to talk today about your book, Just Show Up. Even for you as an author, I, when did you start writing? I mean, ever since a little kid, did you just enjoy writing or how did it come about? Not at all. So yeah, I, I, uh, I read my first book like straight through when I was 18 years old. I was oh. a, a very poor student, uh, barely graduated from high school and uh, ended up going to college. Uh, just to, I had a basketball scholarship. They let me in on academic probation. I get to college and I realized I enjoyed my, my classes more than basketball, probably because I was sitting on the bench. But anyway, uh, and then I, I really liked my English classes. I started to read a little bit and had this desire to, to write. And I started cranking out these sappy devotionals when I was 19 yeah. years old. That sounded an awful lot like the Max Lucado books that I was reading. Um, <laughs> poor man's version, of course. Uh, and then, so yeah, I had this kind of vague desire to write at that point and ended up, you know, getting an English degree and going to seminary and becoming an editor and stuff, but always had yeah. the desire to write. So um, yeah, it's fun. It's, you know, it's something I do every few years. I'll, I'll crank out a book, uh, but it's yeah. always gratifying, even though it's a hard thing. I, you know, I think it was Philip Yancey who said, Writers are people for whom writing is very difficult. <laughs> so I think that's that's certainly true in my case that uh, that um, 
uh, it's a lot of a lot of pain and frustration and then joy because it, yeah. it's it's so gratifying when the final product is done and then when it actually connects with readers. So that's fun. Do you sit there and say, okay, in the morning, I'm going to write for the first three hours of my day, or do you find the time in the coffee shop? I was reading, you was writing your book during the coffee shop while you're in the coffee shop, or do you sit in a quiet place or how do you go about writing? Oh man. Yeah. Coffee shops are my thing. Cause it's like, you got the din of the kind of the background noise. I don't have uh, one of my three kids busting into my office <laughs> to <laughs> disrupt my writing. Um, and, and then also I'm like, there, when you sit down to write, this is me at least, it's like there are a thousand other things that clamor for your attention, right? Yeah. Like, oh man, I, I should like organize my books and, you know, take out the garbage and, you know, whatever else. Anything's better than writing because it's it's really difficult, especially when you're just cranking out words. Yeah. Um, and so when I can get to a coffee shop where I just can't go and do some household chores or like go to my wife and say, hey, let's go get a, a coffee or something. Um, I'm just trapped there. And so that really helps, but I, no, I'm not super consistent with like, okay, every morning from this time to this time, I kind of write in fits and yeah. starts. And, uh, that's, what's worked for me. Drew, what's your writing music? Do you sit in silence and listen to ambience or do you have to listen to a certain type of music? Ah, that's great. Yeah. I, when I do listen to music, it's gotta be wordless music mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I'm a word nerd and words get my attention. So I can't be sitting yeah. there. I, these people that can like listen to a podcast and yeah. write, I don't understand. Do you have yeah. two brains? Like what's going on there? That's not me. So I'll do like inspiring movie soundtrack scores, you know, and just very quietly in the background. Yeah. But I, I, I do enjoy having that, um, going. So yeah. Oh, Drew, for me is I love the white noise and the white noise is a combination of fan and dryer. <laughs> oh man. See, that would put me to sleep. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. And I can sit on the plane, especially when I go to Jakarta or something like that for about 13 hours at eight of those hours. I just sit there and have lawnmower, combination fan, dryer, and I just sit there and just do my work. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Hey, I Different know you strokes. were a leadership journal for a number of years. Is writing articles different than writing books or is it similar? How, how is that different? when you were writing articles, Yeah, well, it's a lot easier because they're a lot shorter. But you know what I've I've actually, you know, that was my background is, is yeah, working at Leadership Journal. I worked at another magazine called New Man and also just web websites, you know, that kind of publishing. And I think it was good training because you learn how to just like write in smaller chunks. Um, you know, articles used to be like 3,000 words and now it feels like they're like 800 words. But then when it comes to the book writing, I actually transfer that because I go, it's too, it's too, daunting to write a book, right? It's like, wow, 40, 50,000 words at least. Um, but if you think of it, it's just a series of articles. It's not yeah, so bad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to write 12, 15 articles. Okay. I can handle that. I can crank those out. Uh, and so that's what I'd encourage others to do, do as well, because yeah, thinking of, of, uh, chomping through a whole book, some people go like, how do you do that? Well, you break it up into little bits, into little articles. Yeah. For those who are listening and we work with a lot of young marketplace leaders and, all, and they say, Drew, I would love to write a book, start with articles, but then how do you come up with ideas? Is it based upon like, even with this book, just show up, how did these ideas come to your head? You know what I find it's different for every, you know, different genre. Uh, it depends where you're writing, but for me, at least the ideas that have come to me is when I encounter a frustration or a struggle in life. Right. So um, my book before this one was on self-control and I wish I could say it was just because I was an expert on self-control. No, it was because I was like, man, why can't I read my Bible every day? 
why can't I exercise consistently? <laughs> so I, I, I struggled in these areas of self-control. And so that got me interested in the topic, got me reading about it. And then out of that, I was like, hey, maybe other people would benefit from what I'm learning. So I think that the best, I, and it's in the Christian space of books, I think the best books are always testimonies. You know, it's like, yeah. man, this is a, something that happened to me. This is how I responded well or poorly. And this is what God taught me and then sharing it with other people. So yeah, if you can think those are the best books, not just, oh, some topic you find mildly interesting, but something that has impacted, has intersected yeah. with your life and then writing out of that. Yeah. So I know a lot of times for me is I'm a historical buff. So I read the life of times of Eisenhower. Now reading the Truman book, but I love presidential museums because I love how they thought, how they lived their life. Fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Hey, with your book today, Joyce, show up. A lot of times you, uh, right, it says, we tend to think it's the big, bold man moments that matter. But in reality, it's the steady accumulation of small acts of obedience to God that add up to a life of meaning and impact. You talked about your life in seminary. How did it change from thinking big to where you're thinking you're processing right now post-seminary. Yeah. <laughs> and that was part of the what sparked this uh, book idea for me is I was thinking back to when I was in my 20s in seminary. And um, and I remember my wife, and Grace, and I, we had these big, grandiose ideas about what we were going to do for God. And it was good. I think we were young, idealistic. And I remember saying to her, like, I don't want the American dream. I don't want the the house in the suburbs with the 2.5 children uh, mm -hmm. and the white picket fence. And she was right there with me. She's like, no, let's do something different. Let's do something radical. Uh, and it's just kind of funny because, you know, flash forward here, what, 18, 19 years. And <laughs> I got a house in the suburbs. I've got a mortgage. I've got a minivan. I've got three kids. Um, and it's fine. You know, my life has turned out great. Uh, uh, we're incredibly blessed. And yet the question becomes, okay, God, how do I be faithful? You know, when life turned out differently than I envisioned it. And, and I remember Grace um, also recently asking me, like, who are the people you most admire? And as I listed them, I realized, wow, not one of these people changed the world per se, or was famous or became a big deal. Um, but they were faithful. Like one was a small church pastor who kept uh, uh, leading his church despite being diagnosed with a debilitating illness. Another was a woman who ran a, ran a soup kitchen and then her husband died and she kept showing up and feeding the homeless. And I thought, why do I admire these people? Because they're faithful. They yeah, persevered. Yeah. Even when life punched them in the face, they kept showing up. And so in this phase of life, which is a tough phase, I'm, you know, in the mid, mid, uh, mid journey here, um, with a lot of responsibilities on my plate, a lot of things vying for my time and attention. It's been a mantra for me where I just go, okay, Drew, just show up, just do the next thing God's placed in front of you yeah, and yeah. God can change the world. <laughs> yeah. Drew, who taught you that? And the reason I asked you that, it seemed like your father really laid the foundation and was a model to you in a lot of the things that you were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad is a pastor he's retired now. Um, but, uh, he struggled in school a lot, like all through like elementary high school. And then he got this call to ministry when he was in high school, he felt God was calling him to be a pastor. And then of course that meant he had to go to Bible school in his denomination. He had to go to Bible school in order to do that. And he goes to Bible school and his academic problems follow him. Uh, every summer after after school, he would get this letter from the school saying, hey, we're advising you not to return. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> and it was great, though, because he was like, you know, he'd, he'd kind of cry and pray and, oh, man, you know, maybe I misheard God, but he just keeps showing up every fall. Uh, and lo and behold, he barely graduated. But man, my dad was the best pastor. He loved people. He, you know, and I remember his, his first church, well, I don't remember it. I was like two. Um, but he, 
he decided that he was going to visit every house in town. So he goes and knocks on every door just to talk to people. And he would go in and do chores with them as a farming community. And, and I realized, man, his academic struggles, I always saw them as a sort of impediment to his calling, but actually I think they were foundational to what he ended up doing because I don't think if life had come easy for him, if, you know, school was easy, I don't know if he would have done those things like knocked on every door. Yeah. And he had an incredible ministry where he just introduced hundreds of people to Jesus and found and, and planted churches uh, and God used them. And so that was, an, that's an inspiration to me just to, you know, keep showing up and uh, doing the small acts of faithfulness. I remember even when my parents, they immigrated in 1972 to the United States. I was born in 1977. But we didn't have very much money, but I kept seeing my parents work hard all the time. They were always up early in the morning. They stayed up with us when we needed to study all the time, but they were always working hard. It was always about other people first. Mm -hmm. For me, a lot of times watching that instilled the hard work values, the perseverance, all of those things. And then a lot of times, even within my work career, I started at the bottom all the time and worked myself up. And so now people will sit there and say, Tommy, how do you, how do you understand what different people are feeling or seeing when you lead their teams? It's because I knew what you're feeling because I start at the bottom Mm. all the time. And those things, your past really helps you to process these things. Yeah. And it's such a blessing and privilege when you have parents that model those things, because of course, not everyone has that, but it just gets stitched into you because you, 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 you know, you, you catch a lot of what they say, but mostly you emulate what they do. (laughs) So what a blessing. Yeah. Can we we spend some time talking about some of the uh, preview of your book or some of the content in your book? Absolutely. (laughs) You talk about this whole thing about deep faith and plotting. Let me start with deep faith as well too, especially with Hebrews 11. I've been studying the whole, I've been studying 1 Kings 17, 18, the life of Elijah. Look, this guy who came, the Tishbit of Tishbi in Gilead, who no one really knew who he was, shows up to Ahab and God transformed his life and he, he learned a whole lesson. When we look at Hebrews 11, this hall of fame were just ordinary people. Talk to me about deep faith and then talk to me a little bit about plotting. Yeah, so deep faith is essential because if you just are dependent on your circumstances and you when if you if you're trying to be faithful but you keep gauging you know how things are working by how things are going and this is a temptation for all of us i think you will give up when things get tough when the storm when the storm kicks up man you'll get discouraged but if you have faith in god that ultimately god will reward you ultimately you're you're being faithful because you know god sees it even if no one else does then you can keep going that's why it's so important and of course yeah the the hall of heroes as it's called in hebrews 11 is great and and those people like like it says you know like they were they were faithful even though some of them didn't even see the the fruit of their labor um in their lifetimes um, and so that's that's tremendously inspiring. And then when it comes to plotting, man, plotting is not a sexy word. I realize that. I, I spent some time in the book talking about that concept, though. Uh, but it's powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think these days, too, people want things to happen immediately. Like we go on social media, and I fall prey to this. It's like you go on Instagram and you see someone who seems like they their ministry or their career just blew up overnight and yeah. they're having all this success. It could be a little demotivating. But I talk in the book about William Carey, the father of modern missions. And I love his quote about this. He says, um, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but he says something like, I have no special talent, but I can plod. And I love that because you think of all the things that that guy accomplished. But if you zoomed in on any given day, you'd see a plotter. You'd see him walking across India or, or, you know, translating the Bible into Sanskrit or 
preaching at his open air services, even though it was like six years before he got one convert, he was a plotter. And, and yeah. but when you do that, when you're consistent, it's incredible what God can do through it. And even a lot of times when the building burned with all the Bible translations and he had to go back and retranslate, you're sitting there, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened, but he went back and did everything. I think I would have thrown in the towel at that point. It's like, okay, God, uh, yeah, <laughs> I got the message. It all burned down, but he just started again. And he had some great quote about like, uh, out of those ashes, God brought something beautiful. He saw it as a positive uh, that he had to start all over again. Yeah. So that's inspiring. I love how you describe it. What is a plotter? Just someone who shows up over and over again. It's not glamorous, but all those little steps add up. And it doesn't sound very sexy. It's slow, laborious, but it's continuous and constant. And when you write this, it reminds me of Nehemiah as cupbearer to the king, doing the same thing over and over again. It reminds me of David tending the father's sheep, mm -hmm. where he's ignored by his father. He has to watch the sheep, but that's where he learned how to battle lions and tigers and all those guys. Or later on with Nehemiah, his boss, the king, became his main donor, the guy who gave him all the time off and also all the papers for him to do all the stuff that he needed to do. That's right. And that's the cool thing is that if you just show up consistently, God can do the rest and God can do amazing things. And the, and the, and the Bible's full of these stories, right? Where people were just faithful. And through that, God did something miraculous. It wasn't yeah. them that did that. But when you're faithful, God does incredible things often through it. And so that's inspiring, especially when you're in a harder discouraging season and you're kind of toiling in obscurity and you're going, God, what happened? Did I miss the boat? Like what's going on here? Um, just be faithful. And I think of the story of Moses. That's one I talk about in the book too. Here, here he is. He, you know, things start out good for him. He's got the fancy Egyptian education. He's going to be this liberator of his people. He had aspirations to do that. Then he ends up being in the wilderness for 40 years, tending sheep. Uh, mm -hmm. But the cool thing is he's, as he's tending sheep, God shows up in the burning bush and calls him. And it's like, he didn't have to solve a riddle to figure that out. He was just tending sheep every day yeah. and yet god was using that time i think in the wilderness to humble him to prepare him to lead uh for what he would ultimately do so man that's that's important to remember especially when you're discouraged god may be using what you're doing right now in ways you can't even see yet yes or a lot of times i've been studying elijah right god calls him to go to zarephath so he has to walk a hundred miles from where he's at to get to zarephath he says okay go look for the widow the widow's sitting there collecting sticks and she says I have a little flour and a little oil. I'm about to make some bread so my son and I could die. Seriously, Lord, you want me to walk 100 miles for this? And get no supplements? Yeah, that's right. Isn't that cool? Yeah, and you don't always see it. But man, when you're, when you, when you're faithful uh, and, and you show up, it's incredible what God can do. Hey, look, I mean, for, even for you, a lot of times is here you are. You're successful as an author. You're a site acquisition. So people know who you are. When was plotting? When did you have to plot in your life? Oh man, I'm still plotting. Appreciate the kind words, but uh, I think I'm only only famous in my own house. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I just, um, yeah, I think that you know when it came to writing, especially when I first started kind of getting the bug to write, and like I said at the outset here, I was like 19 years old, and I thought, man. I'm going to just like start writing books and, and, and things are going to happen. Well, it didn't happen right away. Uh, I remember submitting tons of articles, some of which got published. They ended up getting published, but I tried to write books and they kept getting rejected and it ended up being, Oh, I don't know, 
until my mid thirties before I got a book published, which actually isn't bad, but it was a lot later than I thought. And I realized, man, okay, God, what's going on here. But I just had to keep being faithful, getting some more education, uh, honing my craft. Um, and so that's, that's an instance where plotting, uh, and eventually paid off, but it seemed like a long time. And, you know, yeah. it's funny, things don't always happen on our timeline. And sometimes you can shake your fist at the heavens and go, God, what's going on here? Uh, and yet, you know, things work out. And when I look back too, I can see how all the experiences I've had prepared me for what I'm doing now. Oh, I, I still remember the late Tim Keller. I remember sitting in a meeting with him when I was working with city to city on some of their stuff and the young women asked Tim, how do you, how do you feel being famous? And Tim says, you should never feel comfortable when people worship you. Mm -hmm. And he started sharing the story about his first best-selling book didn't even get published until he was 53 years old. But he was terrible as a pastor early on. And even reading Colin Hans's book, he thought about being a postman and delivering mail and all that stuff. But he said to this young lady, God didn't allow me to be known and recognized until later on in life. But it was those early years of failures that made me secure in who I was. I was a steward of the gospel. And I get security in that. So now, even now, with all the speaking requests and all that stuff, I'm still a steward of the gospel. And too often with young pastors, they get fame and recognition right away and they lose sight of that. Yeah, that could be a curse. Yeah, like if you know, I've seen that where people are like 25 and they, they you know, maybe they're a pastor and their church blows up and they're, wow, like they're, they're famous. It, it can be a real curse early on. Whereas obscurity is a good place to grow yeah. <laughs> right? and, and getting to, to fail early. And um, that can be a real blessing. So, I mean, of course it doesn't feel like it. I understand, but um, that and Tim Keller is the best example because people are like, oh man, I, well, I'm in my fifties. It's too late for me to write. No, look at Tim Keller. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. And he will go down with his death as one of the premier, if not the premier person, influential minister, pastor, thought leaders that Christianity has seen post Bill, Billy Graham. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, this is may maybe sound, sound like hyperbole, but I'd, I'd explain them almost like the C.S. Lewis of our time yeah, uh, yeah. to be read for, you know, dozens, if not hundred years from now. And, and he was a brilliant, winsome, uh, uh, yeah. Representative of the gospel. This is actually a segment as well too. That goes in. I, I love your chapter 10's uh, topic was let something slide because you can't show up for everything. Sometimes in the midst of just following the Lord knows that, Hey, look, you're not going to be able to do everything and it's okay. That's right. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I just had a little visitor here. Oh, <laughs> that's, my, that's my five-year-old running around. <laughs> yes. Is that the one that you named your book? I mean, coordinated your book. I mean, uh, honored your book with? Um, actually, no, that was my, my um, second uh, oldest, my daughter, Mary, that I dedicated yeah. it to. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I dedicated my one before that to my oldest son. And so I got to write at least one more, dedicate to my youngest. Um, so, By the yeah, way, so your youngest did find her toy from what I'm seeing. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> hey man this is real life i'm sorry uh i have two daughters i know exactly there is nothing better than having two daughters oh yeah man the girls are so sweet and of course i love my boy too and it's so funny because they're so different um sorry what was your question again i got i got a little distracted the very um, fact that it's okay if you can't oh do it. that's right well that that's a great illustration of it um Obviously, I didn't lock my door, so I'm letting something slide. But no, here's the thing. So if you're going to show up, and I, I emphasize this in, in the book, like showing up for your community, for your family, for your church, for your work that God's um, put um, in front of you, 
is so crucial, but that also means that you can't show up for everything, right? Because if you just try to do everything, you might think that you can do it, you can't. And so it's important to look at your life and go, okay, what can I let slide? It sounds bad, I know. <laughs> um, but like for me, and this is kind of a silly example, but I'm actually looking at it right now. Uh, one of the things I, I decided in this season of life I'm going to let slide is my desire to have a really nice yard. For a yeah, while, I was yeah. thinking, man, I'm going to, I should real rip it up and resaw it or seed. And I had, I made a few attempts at it, but it wasn't really working and I didn't have the time. And then I realized, you know what? I'm, I'm, I have a busy career, uh, a, a family, um, all these responsibilities. I think the yard at this point isn't a priority. So I break yeah. that I have the most environmentally friendly yard in the neighborhood. Uh, but that's okay because there are other more important things. And so, and, and here's the, the key I, I ask, I tell people like, if you kind of look at your commitments, obviously there's some you cannot offload, like you're <laughs> being a, a spouse, a parent, and, you know, your work. But if there's something that you can look at and going, Hey, if I drop this, what would my primary response emotionally be? Would it be relief or sadness? Yeah. And if it's relief, that may be an indication. That's something you can take off your plate. And then of course, asking God, Hey, what, what can I, what can I unload here uh, so that I can commit myself more fully to the work you you've placed in front of me? True. I found myself even a lot of times is right now running resource global. We're operating 15 different global cities and then I'm traveling all the time. I realized one of the things I had to let go was even serving in the church more actively. Now I'll do key things, but I can't be there like what I was doing back in my single years, 12 years ago. Right. And I had to be okay with that because a lot of times you don't want to get to a point where you're serving ministry that you're ignoring the eight-year-old daughter or four-year-old daughter where you're just never home. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the thing too. Some people, you know, that can be hard be like, oh, well, I want to do this. You know, that it's easy to drop the things that are obviously like just weighing you down or are not that important, but sometimes you have to let go of things that are really good. And it may be that, well, there's going to be a season in the future where you can do that. Maybe where you can be an elder in your church yeah, and more yeah, fully yeah. invest. Right. But if you're in a season where you're traveling a lot and, and, and you're busy with your family, that can be harder to do. So yeah, it's just about being wise and, and really listening to God because you will burn yourself out and then you'll be of no use to anyone. Now, with your book as well too, who's your audience? What are you hoping that when they read your book, they walk away from? Oh man, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I I think the subtitle is something about, yeah, a guide for exhausted Christians. So that says it, you know, people that are basically the same as me where it's like, man, I, I feel like I have... Um, less bandwidth than I need. Um, how do I get everything done? I feel tired. I feel a little guilty because I want to do these things for God. And yet, um, sometimes I feel like I'm not equal to the task. Uh, so that's the kind of person that I'm aiming at. And what I hope they walk away from the book with is encouragement and just inspiration that listen, it's first of all, it's not all on your shoulders. You know, God is going to take your meager efforts and he's going to multiply them for his kingdom. Yeah. Um, and then just a renewed desire to show up and realize how much that matters. Because you might not even think it like, oh, am I even being a good parent? Well, you're there. That's huge, yeah. right? Uh, am I really serving enough at church? Man, you're showing up on Sundays when you're around. That's great. Um, you know, is my career making a difference? Well, you're showing up and doing your job every day. That is huge. And just making sure you're committed to that baseline um, uh, action every day to do the next little step God's place in front of you. True. One quote that I love was you looked at Zechariah 410. Do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And you're right. God doesn't sit back with folded arms. 
waiting for us to reach perfection. He rejoices to see the work begin. And he doesn't demand it happen all at once. He only asks you to take the next step. Take the next step. Yeah, that's just encouraging me. And sometimes I think it's good to actually kind of lower the bar a little bit <laughs> when it comes to some of these things, whether it's spiritual disciplines, you know, like you don't have to read through the Bible every year or master a spiritual discipline with a Latin name. If you just crack open your Bible every day, that's huge, right? Um, and, and similarly, like we've been talking about with church, you don't necessarily have to lead a big ministry or something. If you're just showing up to church, that's a big deal. And yeah, God doesn't despise small beginnings, so, so we shouldn't either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, last thing before I ask uh, for some of your information, Portland Trailblazers, because I realize you're a big basketball fan. What is your prognosis? Did you think they were right in trading Damian Lillard? And what are your thoughts yeah. on Scoot Henderson and Fernie Hardaway, as well as Shaden Sharp? Well, I thanks for bringing up such a painful topic. Um, I'm a long-suffering Blazers fan. <laughs> they haven't won. They haven't. I think they won their last title in '77. Like so, in my entire life, they haven't won. And and yet, hope springs eternal. I keep deluding myself into thinking they're going to win. Uh, I was sad to see Lillard go, of course. Um, but we're in a rebuilding thing. We got some yeah. great young players. We're not going to win this year, okay? I'm under no illusions about that. Um, and yet. Um, Shaden Sharp is looking good. Scoot Henderson is off to a rocky start. He's yeah, the rookie, yeah. but he could be really good. I'm still waiting for them to to call me up, um, uh, and I'm ready to suit up. I don't know if they're looking for a slightly overweight 46-year-old, but I am ready when the call comes. Yeah. Hey, I am hoping that at the trade deadline, they'll trade Grant for some draft picks. Anthony Hardaway trade him for some draft picks because I don't think he's the future. And then from that point, I start retooling around Shaden Sharp as well as uh, Shaden uh, Scoo Henderson. I like it. I like it. Let's make you the GM. I like your plan. We're in a rebuilding phase. We need to double down on it. Oh my gosh, Drew. Where can people find you at? Okay, let's see. Well, yeah, I got a website. Just my name, Drew Dick. Uh, last name D Y C K. DrewDick.com. Uh, you can you know, read a free chapter from the book there, see some cheesy pictures of me and my family. Uh, and uh, I spend too much time on Twitter or whatever it's called now X. Uh, so if you want to check me out there as well, or and this is even better, this relates to the theme of the book. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, drop by, we'll get coffee, just show up, <laughs> we'll yeah. grab some coffee. We'll go to Powell's, the ultimate, the best bookstore on planet earth, which is downtown Portland. And we'll hang out. Very, very good. Drew Dick, just show up. How a small acts of faithfulness changes everything. Thank you so much for jumping on. And thanks so much for the conversation. Hey, thank you. This has been a blast.